Take your Bibles and we'll go back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 10 through 12. I'm grateful. I want to thank Joy Rowan and her life group, actually, for helping uh, set up the auditorium, decorate the auditorium. We're grateful for how it looks each Christmas to remind us of Christ's coming, to celebrate that in our hearts and remember why he came. I'm grateful that her life group helped her. I think that's a, a great way for the body to work together to encourage one another. Um, as we move forward, we're going to move into our Christmas season and begin hearing a series of Christmas messages. Next week, Steve Brown will be speaking for us on a passage um, of prophecy in Isaiah about the coming of Jesus Christ. And then we'll be focusing on the narratives in the book of Matthew before we resume our series in 1 Peter again next year. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. We'll read again verses 3 through 12 again this morning. But as you consider your life today, what is it that brings you the most joy? What brings you the most joy in your life? There's all kinds of things in this kind of season that you might be thinking of, but, but think about it throughout the year. What is it that gets you going in the morning? What is it that's motivating you? Where are you seeking satisfaction? In the words of one old movie of some renown, what's so important? What do you have that's worth living for? And the answer that came back is true love. Now the character in the movie is saying that his love for his future bride is what he's living for. But you know that answer is true for the Christian as well. It's not set on a person. God's people have been loved with an everlasting love by the triune God himself. This is what gives the Christian daily joy and motivation. The Lord and his love for us in Christ is what is to be motivating us each day. That's the challenge. That's, what's Peter, that's what Peter has been setting up before us. And yet so often... I know in my heart, in my life, that's not the case. So often we're motivated by what we want to get done in this day, in this life. We're motivated by our own selfish desires, our self-directed priorities, what we think will make us most happy, that next thing. And one of the ways God gets our attention is through the trials that he allows into our lives. Trials have a way of sobering us, of making us ask, what really matters? When some desire goes unmet, one of the things God might be asking you to consider is what really matters to you? What am I really living for? What gives my life meaning? Now, I don't know how you would counsel someone who's discouraged by their current difficult circumstances, but it seems right to conclude that Peter has divine insight on what is most important for us to hear as we face trials, as we face hardship. And though this might not be where our mind immediately goes, it's where the Holy Spirit has directed his mind and is directing our mind again this morning. As this letter begins, as he's writing to troubled persecuted, beleaguered believers. He counsels them with the truths of the gospel. Let's look at, back at verse 3 
And we'll read again down through verse 12. God's word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, reserved in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you all, congregations, rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even angels long to look. Let's ask for God's help As we consider this text this morning. Father, we come before you confessing our need. We need your spirit to open our eyes. To open our ears. To open our minds. Illumine our hearts to the truths that you have recorded here for us. Help us to know what these verses mean. And how they should be shaping our thinking, our beliefs, our behavior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verses 3 through 5, we've considered salvation's future reward. Peter said it is a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In verses 6 through 9, he described salvation's present adversity. It's a salvation finally won by enduring present trials. Now in verses 10 through 12, he's going to highlight salvation's past glories. It's a salvation with a rich prophetic past. Peter wants to convince us again this morning that if we will focus on the incomprehensible greatness of our salvation, we can joyfully endure present trials. That's the remedy for what these believers are facing. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. What our text will teach us this morning is that God's people can greatly rejoice even in trials because They know the immeasurable value of his grace. And that is a knowledge that is continuing to grow and increase. As we consider this text, we're going to be looking at it through the perspective of those who are involved in revealing the value of God's grace to us. I don't know if you noticed the different groups of people that Peter was highlighting, but there's actually four. We see the prophets were involved, the Spirit of God himself the apostles, those who preach the gospel, and the angels. Each of them encourages us to value this immeasurable grace. 
that God has shown to us. So first, we receive encouragement from inquiring prophets. Verse 10 begins by recalling our attention to the end of verse 9 concerning this salvation. This is the link by which Peter now recalls all that God has been orchestrating as a master composer in the past for our benefit, our encouragement, our comfort. He's been putting it together. Notice the words in verse 10 that all synonymously demonstrate the diligence of the prophets searching out the details of this good news, of the gospel. They're fascinated by it, and therefore, they fixated upon it. They wanted to see it come to pass. They longed for the salvation of the Lord, even though they had only a part. They only knew in part what God was doing. They only got to see very dimly what was to come. It's like us, from our perspective now, looking at the future return of Christ. But even then, we know who it is. We're told here in these verses, they don't know who or when. The first verb translated in our Bibles in verse 10 as searched implies a diligent seeking for something. It's often used of one who's seeking after God or seeking for truth in the scriptures. The second word translated as inquired there in verse 10 is unique. It's only used here. It's most often referring to searching through something like a house, a tent, or a city to find some person or thing. Think of that illustration Jesus used of the woman searching for the lost coin. There's great intentionality and purpose. And then the word inquiring, beginning verse 11, is yet a third different word that Peter is stacking on top of each other, highlighting this purposeful search in order to find something out. Picture in your mind a miner who's eager and diligent in searching daily for the riches that he's convinced is just down that shaft he's working. Or is in that river where he's sifting for gold. He knows there's value and reward in the effort. Though it might not come today. He just doesn't know where and when his efforts will pay off. Peter, the Apostle Paul, godly believers throughout church history have been enthralled with this message. Because they spent time gazing on the glories of Christ in the gospel. Doesn't the example of these prophets working and working and diligently studying and seeking and searching and inquiring at understanding the revelation from God challenge us to work at understanding what we hold in our hands? Matthew Henry writes, those who would be acquainted with this great salvation And the grace that shines therein must inquire and search diligently into it. We can conclude the degree to which you delight and value God's grace to you is a direct reflection on how much time and effort you have put into studying it. It won't be glorious to you if you don't ever look at it. If you rarely meditate on it, If you don't regularly consider what he has done for you. Who are the most godly believers that we see in the pages of scripture or we read about in church history? They are people fascinated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't get over it. 
Think about Paul, how that moved him forward through trial and persecution time and time and time again. Peter is saying, here's the key. Here's the key. You must be fascinated by the gospel of God's grace to you. Believer, are you growing in your understanding of God's love for you in Christ? Or do you largely ignore him other than when you come to church? Is this a personal pursuit for you? Do these truths mean anything to you personally? Or are you essentially living a godless, Christless life? You're fine to give mental assent to them, but they do not stir your passions. They do not motivate and reorient the way that you plan your life. Perhaps you think you've just punched a ticket to heaven. And other than that, that's all you need the gospel for. Church family, we must be a church that delights in who God is and in what he has done for us. This should shape our worship, our praying, our singing, our listening to the word more and more. And I don't just mean for those who are planning the services or those who are leading the services, but for how each of us participates in it. Church family, this is to be our priority. Now, when I first began meditating on this passage, it seemed to me that the prophets got the short end of the stick. You know, doesn't it, it, does, doesn't it kind of feel that way? They're only given a little bit of revelation. They loved what they got, but they don't experience the fullness of it. But the more I thought about God's work through them, the more I see the truth that God's servants are always delighted by the revelation and understanding of it that they've been given. God was being gracious to them in what he gave to them, and it was enough. And their delight was to seek it and seek how God would fulfill it. A godly believer is always glad to see God's mercy and grace shown to others through his life. This is a good example for us. This is how we're to live. This is how we're to disciple each other. As we rejoice in the truths of God's word, we share it with one another. We share it with a lost world. The eager inquiry of these Old Testament saints reminds me of what we see of the Old Testament believers, Simeon and Anna. They're uniquely blessed to be able to finally see the Christ child. It's the fulfillment of their hopes of salvation for Israel and the world. It's just a glimpse of what desire, longing the Old Testament believers had. In Luke 2, Simeon says he took the baby up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. These prophets, Peter tells us, were led by the Spirit to predict the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is what God's people needed to know about their Messiah. He wasn't just coming to set up a political, earthly kingdom. They were being informed by the Spirit of Christ what salvation to come would include, what it would require of the servant. And they're eager to find out who he is and when he would come. 
This is the unified message in all of Scripture. Isn't this informative to tell us that the Old Testament prophets were fascinated by Jesus? That from the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross as we look backward now? Consider what Jesus says to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. As they're debating who Jesus really was. Is he the Messiah? Why did he die if he was? Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus in that text is instructing us how to read the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that at every turn of the page in the Old Testament, we're supposed to make strange and ludicrous connections to Jesus. But it's saying that the overall message of the Old Testament is pointing at him. The entire book is about him. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 13, 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Peter's main point here in these three verses is that believers in Jesus Christ are uniquely blessed to live in the time when the predictions of the prophets have now come to pass. God's grace to us in this moment in the history of salvation is awe-inspiring and incredible. What did you do to choose to live in this time after the cross? Did you deserve that? Did you earn that? You're in a privileged position, Peter says. Rejoice that you get to see its fulfillment. Secondly, we receive encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of God faithfully executed his role of revealing these truths to the prophets. They're inspired words. They're authoritative. When they wrote, God, they were writing God's words. These prophecies were not the invention of those prophets, nor their best guess at what God was doing. In verse 12, we see the Spirit speaking again through the faithful messengers. And there it's confirming again that the apostles' message is God's word because of the Spirit. Now in verse 11, why does Peter call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ? He specifically and deliberately chose that name. Why? I believe he's specifically highlighting one of the major roles of the Spirit, one of his jobs. He The Spirit of God points mankind at Jesus Christ. That's his job. He points at others in the Godhead. He points at the Son, saying this is the way for sinful man to be saved. In this way, he serves the Godhead and their purpose by illuminating the hearts of man and convincing them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Listen to how Paul refers to the Spirit in Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir 
through God. Do you see how Paul is connecting all three members of the Godhead and demonstrates their coordinated work in your salvation? Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit several other times as the Spirit of Jesus highlighting his function. What we see is the salvation of sinners is accomplished by the work of a triune God. We know that he had planned to glorify himself before the foundation of the world. We're not told exact specifics as to how each person is involved other than pieces we receive in passages like this. I mean, just think about it. The spirit of Christ is predicting about Christ. In John 17, the spirit allows us to hear Jesus, the son, pray to his father. He shows us his passion for his own glory and our eternal good. He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, the ones to come, us, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Paul highlights the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ in Colossians. Would you keep your finger here and turn over to Colossians Chapter 1, I want you to see that this is part of the ministry of the Spirit in inspiring the Word. He speaks of Christ as supreme. These are familiar verses to us. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus Christ, is the image, the exact representation. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, first in priority of all creation, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He was there in the beginning. It concludes in verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. We exist as Christians for him. Verse 17, and he is before, preeminent in all things, and in him all things were hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And here's Paul's purpose statement, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross. So here's what this means. The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ was pointing at Jesus for centuries. Pastor and author John Piper states it this way. Peter points out the amazing fact that Christ himself, the Spirit of Christ, hundreds of years before his own death and resurrection, was predicting that death and resurrection. He's doing so by the means of the Holy Spirit, which means that Christ, the Son of God in heaven, has been contemplating his suffering and death for us for centuries. Indeed, as far back as the plan of salvation reaches in the mind of God, so far back has Christ been willing and ready to give himself for our sins. You are not loved just for a bloody moment of sacrifice at the cross. You've been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of God. In the eternal plan of the Father, 
the Son, and the Spirit to save sinners who trust in him. Do you see how that might comfort these believers? You're a part of something massive. You're a part of something so far beyond this world and the trials and the pains and the hardships that you're facing. This must control your thinking. The prophets highlight the value of salvation in Christ. The Spirit demonstrates the glories, the Spirit demonstrates the glories of salvation in Christ. Next, we receive encouragement from faithful preachers. Verse 12 says again, it was revealed to them, there that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you and what they were pointing to in Jesus. In the things that you that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. Those to whom Peter was writing had come to faith in Christ through faithful preachers of that gospel message. This would especially include the apostles, these things, these gospel truths, the most significant facts in all of history were proclaimed to Peter's readers and to us. These faithful preachers were passionate in preaching the gospel. Notice what Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The prophets, the spirit, the apostles demonstrate the value of God's grace in salvation. Finally, we receive encouragement from captivated angels. Verse 12 concludes by telling us that even the angels long to look at what our great God is doing in salvation. The word long includes the idea of passion, a strong impulse an overpowering impulse. It means to stretch forth your head or neck or to bend down and look carefully. This is the same word used to describe Peter and John looking into the empty tomb, curious, desiring eagerly to know what's happened to Jesus. Where's his body? They're investigating, they're searching. This statement is amazing to us, isn't it? It's hard for us to even comprehend. What what do they want to know? Even the angels are captivated by God's incredible grace to sinners. They want to see more of it. It's the most fascinating thing that they can watch in all the universe, even with their supernatural sight and understanding. That's Peter's point. It's so breathtaking and wonderful that these supernatural beings who do not sin, who are privileged with spiritual information that we do not have, who serve as God's messengers, who some stand around the throne and worship him always, are still captivated by salvation. They're fascinated, not by our lives, but by his grace applied to us. Who is a God like this? If you would, turn one more time to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Again, Paul affirms this same truth. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, there's our same word, this gospel grace, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light, to reveal 
for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages? Those prophets who didn't know all that God was doing. In God who created all things. Verse 10. Notice the reason. This is unusual and might catch us by surprise. So that through the church, through God collecting into a body sinners that have been saved by his grace, and he's pulling one from here and there and collecting them into a body, what's he doing with that? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now here's what's unusual. Who is he making this known to? Verse 10, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's exalting himself even in the spiritual realm through the church, through us. This was according to the eternal purpose that he'd realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just think about it. The angels who are privileged to understand reality from God's perspective, whose minds are not dimmed by sin, find Christians, even those facing opposition and hardship, even those tempted to doubt this great God, whose faith is small and are tripped up by their unbelief. They find Christians to be objects of such intense interest that they stoop down and crane their necks to marvel at how God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, why is Peter telling these struggling believers these truths? Because they need to know that although unbelievers around them might conclude that they're worthy of scorn and shame, that their beliefs and ideas are foolish and stupid and weak. Those throughout salvation history, including the prophets and the apostles, the angels, and even the Holy Spirit, find God's work of salvation to be of the greatest interest because it is the most valuable thing in all the universe. God's gracious work of salvation is the most interesting and marvelous event happening in the cosmos today. It is what all of history is all about. That's what Peter's saying. Why? Why is that what it's all about? Because it highlights just how magnificent and beautiful and supreme our God is. And we get to be a part of that plan. I began this morning by asking What consistently gives you joy in this life? Do you see why you have every reason to be joyful? No matter what you're facing. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 begins with a similar question. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's a personal question, but with both temporal and and eternal implications, if your honest answer is anything other than Jesus Christ and the salvation he's given me by faith, then you need to consider what you're building your life upon. What is your only comfort in life and death? If it's on anything other than Jesus, can it really give you comfort? You may be a church member or involved in church Christian ministry, But if you've never responded personally to this great salvation provided by God in Jesus Christ, then you are lost. 
how you live isn't the ultimate bearing of what you believe, though your belief will bear itself out in works. If you know this God, he will change your life. But just because you profess with your mouth doesn't mean you're a believer. You must put your confidence in him alone. If you do not know the immeasurable value of God's grace to you through Jesus Christ, please come talk to me after the service. I'll be there in the lobby. Talk to someone around you. Ask them how you can know. Turn from your sin to Christ. In this passage, Peter is continuing to shape our perspective on our lives in this world among unbelievers. He concludes this introductory sentence by highlighting the advantages of believers at this point in salvation history. One commentator concludes, this is amazing love. Ancient prophets, itinerant preachers, exalted angels have for ages stood in the service of this salvation that has come to us. The fullness of your salvation has been the joyful business of God and his servants over the centuries. It's their priority. If the good news that Jesus came to this earth to suffer, die, and rise is so captivating, so important, so beautiful to the godly men and women who came before us and to supernatural angels who understand it and have a perspective far better than ours, then what should our response be? How should these truths shape our view of our lives and specifically in this context of our trials? The answer is when you're facing hardship, recall the immense value of his grace to you, to you. I want you to look back at the passage and notice the word you or yours. It's intentional here by Peter. He writes, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. You could own it. You could have it. You could be assured of this grace. The prophets were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced, proclaimed, preached to you. Through those who preach the good news to you. Can you see the encouragement that Peter is providing to these troubled first century Christians? Do you see the difference it makes? Can you see how the Holy Spirit would encourage you this morning? All of God's power and favor throughout redemption history was meant for you to marvel at, to enjoy, to be comforted and amazed by. Do you see how this glorious gospel makes the things of earth grow strangely dim? You stand in a long line of those who believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. This salvation is intended to lead you to rejoice and worship and trust our great God. And Peter wants his readers to see this not as something out there for the church out there, but as personal for them, as a congregation, as individuals in the body. Church family, this grace was given to us. This is our message. 
and God's wise and sovereign plan, we get to see it more fully than any other believers throughout salvation history thus far. Why do you have that privilege? And what will you do with it? This is to shape how you view yourself, how you view others around you, and your circumstances. Is your view of salvation, of God's grace to you, shaping your view of your circumstances and hardships? Our text is calling us to view our life through gospel lenses. These are the glasses through which we're to view all of life. They're to inform and shape our perspective of hardship now and of the glory to come. The passage again intends to sharpen our belief, to affirm our conviction in the value of the gospel. They'll lead us to worship over and over and over again and draw us to the heart of God. We will sing for all eternity, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory. Now, who we are in Christ is to shape our behavior. Peter is about to give us our first command in the very next verse. Look down at verse 13. It begins, therefore, based on all that I've said about who you are, preparing your what? Your minds for action. You have to think a certain way in order to respond right. And being sober-minded, set your hope now fully on the grace that will be finally brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let these gospel truths wash over you again and again. The triune God has been orchestrating his grace toward you for generations and generations. And this is what Peter says you need to know and meditate on and rehearse again and again and again. The gospel is not just meant for those who are without him. A focus on his immeasurable grace will strengthen and encourage you to keep going, to keep fighting your flesh, to keep walking with him. So embrace your status as an elect exile, as a child of the king of kings, and rejoice in that truth that cannot be shaken by an event or trauma or trial that may come your way in this life. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So come, let us adore him. Peter would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray him, praise him. Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, our minds can barely comprehend these truths. We see what we will receive in the future, and we know we don't deserve it. We see your powerful, protecting hand in the present, even through trials, and again, we don't deserve it. And we see our privileged position in salvation history, and we don't deserve this. And that's the point, because it's not about us. 
Not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but unto you alone be glory. Father, may our joy in this life be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, for some of us in the room today, for all of us, we have to admit it's not as valuable to us as it ought to be. As Peter is informing us, it should be. As your spirit is telling us, it can be. Father, we ask that you would shape us and change us by giving us the wisdom to worship you in the way that you've revealed in this text. Lord, we believe through your word that worship is change. It's a change of viewpoint. We no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who bought us with a price. And therefore, we're to glorify you with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength. Help us to do that this week. Help us to live for you. Live for the one who would die for us. In Jesus' name, amen.